See, ladies and gentlemen, I was taught by my parents, and it cost them several bonds, and the near death of my brother, that all men and women, no matter what they believe, are made in the image of God. That's why in Northern Ireland, a sectarian country known for its violence, he employed, as equally as he could, people from the divided community. That's how I grew up. That has stuck with me. So when I meet someone, and I have friends in virtually every religion you can name and none, it's very important that before we begin this debate and try to answer this question, that I regard them as infinitely valuable because they're made in the image of God. That's serious. Point number two. They could shame me morally. We need to take this on board, you know, because from where I sit as a Christian, every man and woman is, as I've just said, made in the image of God as a moral being. And if you read the Bible carefully, you'll find pagans sometimes shame the great people of faith. Abraham was shamed by a pharaoh of Egypt, for instance. And sometimes we can misbehave where our non-Christian friends, because they are made in the image of God and of a conscience, can put us to shame. Thirdly, as you look around the world, you will find, as I was reminded last night in my debate with the Humanist of the Year in Canada and Toronto last night, he reminded us, quite correctly, that you will find the golden rule in every religion, philosophy, in history that we know. That's a fascinating thing. Lewis pointed that out in 1940 in uh, appendix at the end of his book, The Abolition of Man. It has always interested me. And of course you would expect that if we're made in the image of God. Do unto others what you would they did unto you. So there's a common morality. These days it's very common to emphasize differences, and there are differences. But there's a very, very important common core, and we need to respect it. That's the fourth thing. Or was it the third thing? Doesn't matter. <laughs> Bullet point thing. <laughs> so having said all that, we now come to the differences. Now, I find it's usually atheists that get upset about the differences, not the people in the given religions, because they're proud of them. Many of my Muslim friends, when I explain what I'm about to explain to you, will stand up in public and say, you're dead right. You see, the fact is, if you leave Christianity out of it, certain forms of Hinduism that are polytheistic are never going to agree with Islam about the number of gods. Obviously, there are huge differences, and we'd be idiotic to pretend that they didn't exist because the representatives of all those religions will tell you that they exist. Now let's take the three monotheistic Abrahamic religions. How would you distinguish between them? Well now this is a personal question that I've been asked, so you'll forgive me if you don't want to hear a personal answer, just go to sleep and I'll tell you when to wake up. <laughs> I have Muslim friends, they do not believe that Jesus died. I have many Jewish friends, they believe he died but he didn't rise. And I believe he both died and rose. You don't have to be a genius at logic to see that those three things cannot be simultaneously true. So how do you settle it? Well, the only way I know, you look for evidence. That's how you do it. And I can only be personal and say the evidence has convinced me that Jesus both died and rose. So you approach it historically. But there's another way of approaching it, ladies and gentlemen. Am I allowed to write to this blackboard? Oh, now I feel at home. <laughs> and I'm not going to discuss mathematics I'm going to discuss this question of the differences. It's very interesting to talk to people what they mean by a religion. And usually what they mean is that you've got some kind of an entrance gate, some initiation ceremony or something, and you're on the way. And often they use metaphors like the way, the eightfold path, and so on, to describe what happens after that entrance thing. So there's the way. You'll say I'm not at the castle. And the way goes up and down, as we know in life. And, uh, 
Most people, when I ask to tell me about their religion, say the way ends with another door. And at that door, there is a scale. And you know what that represents, of course. There is an evaluation, yes? And whatever is here, nirvana, heaven, whatever, depends on you passing. Well, I nearly said the final exam, so we might as well say this is the University of Waterloo. <laughs> so let's go back to that analogy. You get into the university through some kind of entrance, I presume, and then you uh, have got a university path, which does go up and down you students, doesn't it? <laughs> so you have people to help you along the path. There they are. You see, you've got these delightful professors of whom we've heard some this afternoon. But although they teach you brilliantly and help you, they cannot guarantee that you get through your final exams. Have you discovered that yet? <laughs> because if you haven't, you'd better soon. <laughs> so the basic principle of this whole thing is merit. Many people think that's what Christianity is. You've got a sort of ceremony getting you in, performed on an infant or something like this, and then you try and stay in the way, and you've got your teachers, and up comes the judgment. And if you're accepted, you get in, and if you're not, no. Here's the vast difference between Christianity and everything else. Christianity is not like that. It starts with a cross. And Christ makes the claim that if we trust him and receive him as Lord, we already have eternal life. And as he himself said, we shall not come into judgment but have passed from death to life. So the acceptance comes where? Here, not here. That makes a colossal difference. You see, many people, when they talk to me about these important things, they say, you know, you are a very arrogant professor. You claim to know that God has accepted you. Yes, I do, ladies and gentlemen. But the secret of that is, because it's not my merit, it's what Christ has done. Now try and follow me, because before you reject Christianity, and I've been asked about Christianity, you need to know what it says. And it says something so radical we could hardly dare believe it's true. It says you can be accepted at the beginning. So here I am in my little path up and down, you see. But I'm not living in order to gain acceptance. I'm living because I've got it. Now I want you to think of something. I met a girl my first day at university. Her name was Sally, and I've been married to her for 46 years. <laughs> so I came to her one day, and I had a present. It was a, a Mrs. Beaton's cookery book. And I said, Sally, I, I would like to marry you. So here's a cookery book, and it's full of laws. And here's a law for making apple strudel, which I like. <laughs> now, if you keep this, these laws for, let's say, 30 or 40 years, I'll think of accepting you. I wouldn't dream of accepting you now. Will you marry me? <laughs> Why are you laughing, ladies and gentlemen? That's what millions of people think of God. You wouldn't insult your fellow human being by suggesting a relationship should be based on merit. Why is it we do it with God? And now perhaps we begin to understand how big this thing is. What is the secret of my little marriage? Well, she accepted me for some reason. I know why I accepted her. And that's what sets both of us free to live. I'm not desperately trying to gain her acceptance. I live to please her because I've got it. This is magnificent, you see, and that's why I'm a Christian and not something else. Because my final point is very simple, ladies and gentlemen. Christianity does not compete with any other religion at this level because none of them offered me this. As simple as that. Good night and thank you very much.